Welcome to Irish Passport. Uh, let's do it. Welcome to the Irish Passport. I'm Tim McInerney. I'm Naomi O'Leary. We're friends. Okay, well to Naomi. Anwar Fad Tim. This is your passport to Irish culture, history and politics. Uh-huh. I'm recording. One, One two, two, three. three. Okay. everyone. Hi and welcome back to the Irish Passport podcast. Today, Tim, we have an electrifying topic to discuss. (laughs) (laughs) We are going to be looking at what has been called Ireland's quiet revolution, the Mm -hmm. expansion of electricity across the country in the 20th century. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And now, listen, I mean, when we were coming to this topic, I thought, Jesus, like, what on earth are we going to say about this? But like the minute (laughs) we started researching this, it became pretty clear that this is actually really fascinating. Uh, First of all, electricity didn't actually make its way across Ireland until really, really, really late. There was electricity in Ireland since the 19th century, but in some parts of Ireland, and I mean significant parts of Ireland, people were just living pretty happily without electricity until the mid-1960s. So there's loads of people around today in Ireland who very much, you know, very clearly remember a society with no electricity at all. Kind of gives you an insight into why that thatched cottage, open fire image of Ireland from postcards and, you know, tourist promotional literature has remained so prevalent. Like, I can't imagine what it must have been like to someone who might have been traveling from New York or from London to Ireland and showing up to find an entire community just living without electricity. You know, it must have been pretty mind-blowing. What's fascinating to me is that it's not just the absence of electricity that would have been remarkable, but the ways in which that would have shaped people's lives. Uh, So Mm -hmm. you would have had the continued presence of all the kind of pre-electric ways of life. So a domestic life that's really centred around the fireplace and all the paraphernalia of pre-electric society. Now, Naomi, before we go any further, I'm not sure how representative this is of Ireland in general, but even in like the 1990s, um, electricity where where I lived was pretty unreliable still. Whenever there was a, a strong wind or a storm, we would just more or less expect to have a power cut. And when we did have a power cut, like often the power was gone for a few days at a time. That happened all the time. My dad had like a gas camping cooker thing (laughs) on standby. And for some reason, it would always happen at Christmas. (laughs) Like I suppose you just get bad weather in the middle of winter. But famously, the, the local priest on Christmas Day would declare every year that it was God's way of getting families to spend more quality time together. And <laughs> like, you know, go back to basics and stop being so materialistic. And stop watching the TV, I guess. Stop watching TV, yeah, exactly. But yeah, funnily enough, the priest's house was never affected by those power cuts. Now, <laughs> I, mean, I think I have a feeling that if, if it was, maybe something might have been done about the infrastructure a little bit sooner. So funnily enough. Um, but no, yeah, it was kind of fun, especially when you're a kid. Power cuts are pretty um, unexceptional as well um, in Dublin, for example. Even as we were pre- preparing to record this episode, uh, my parents' house uh, lost electricity and my grandparents' house and uh, the whole area uh, for about 24 hours. They usually happen um, when there's a big storm, uh, which, given climate change, is actually an increasingly common thing. Like Ireland mm. seems to be developing a kind of hurricane season that goes mm. on for longer. It starts earlier. It starts in late summer and it goes on for longer and it has fiercer storms than in the past. Um, so the the electricity ESB teams are always, you know, ready whenever there's that kind of weather forecast to start driving mm. around the country to restore outages because trees are going to take down wires or whatever, and everyone's become come to expect it. So there are still parts of the country that were unconnected to the national grid until 2003. Uh, that was when the islands of Inish Turbot and Inish Turk off the west coast were finally plugged in into the system. And before that, the the people who lived there had to use diesel power generators. Interestingly enough, I'm pretty sure that I was in a house without electricity after that. When I was a teenager, I I stayed in the house of my friend's grandparents and they lived on an island in the Shannon and you had to row to get out to it and they had no electricity. Mm. So it was, yeah, it wasn't connected to sort of any grids at all. Like they didn't get post. They had to largely recycle all of their own rubbish and so on and like row supplies out from the shore. Um, But interesting, it was kind of, it was quite a grand, fancy house, you know. It was quite like a 
fancy house. It was just pretty old fashioned and they were like, you know, did a lot of stuff themselves, whether it was sort of making their own food or, yeah, sorting out their waste. What an image, Naomi. Oh, my God. <laughs> the the grand house on the island li- living in a time warp. You got you got right. to get back there and make make a documentary. <laughs> yeah, they were pretty old. Like they'd been there for, I guess, their whole lives, at least it seems. Mm. I think it had been a family house that everyone had had for at least well back into the 20th century and things just hadn't changed. Absolutely fascinating. Um, all right, so come on, let's. we better chart down the history of all this uh, in a nice and succinct way. Okay, so the story of how electricity came to Ireland and came to transform Ireland, it charts a profound social and societal transformation from a largely non-industrialised, hugely agricultural society into Europe's digital hub. So Tim, when did electricity first come to Ireland? Right. So this is actually earlier than you might think, actually. Uh, in terms of commercial distribution of electric power, um, it was very early. Uh, you start to see electricity rolled out to public and private buildings in some parts of Ireland as far back as like the 1880s, 1890s. Mm. Um, that's about the same time as like you're getting electricity in New York and London. So it was pretty contem- contemporaneous to the rest of, uh, of the world. Um, sometimes this was managed by city corporations like um, Derry Corporation and Belfast Corporation and Dublin. And from about the 1890s onwards, these corporations or other other suppliers would manage these small little coal power plants, really just, you know, the size of a small factory. And they would just burn coal and produce electricity for people and businesses in the city, but a very, very limited. And that was on a very basic level. And of course, that was an extremely expensive way to access electricity. So interesting that you say that because... If we think back to that episode we did on elites, when I visited Hoth Castle, we went down into the basement of Hoth Castle and they had electricity there very early. Um, And actually their electricity, like wires and fittings and stuff, um, they had a guy come to look at them who was like an engineer and he said that it actually needed to be in the museum because there wasn't anywhere else (laughs) that like had these fittings anymore. You know, they they were from like, I guess, the late 1800s. But so this move movement from the idea of like private or ad hoc electricity supplying to electrifying an entire country, that's a big shift in terms of economic terms. It means that it can power industry and commerce as well as homes. And people were kind of aware that electrification was the future. So when the Irish Free State gained independence from the UK... My understanding is that one of the big ambitions of the new government was to build like a massive power plant and start rolling out electricity en masse. This was key key to their vision of what the nation was going to be. Yeah, like it must have been really exciting. And there was really good reasons uh, for doing this. Historically, one thing that Ireland has always been a bit short of is is fuel. Um, Ireland, of course, doesn't have a huge amount of natural coal deposits, um, unlike um, the island of Britain next door. Uh, So a lot of the fuel burned in, for instance, those little city power plants, that had to be imported from Britain. And that cost a lot of money. But one thing Ireland does have in absolute abundance is water. And that's something that the independent government, you know, really has had its eye on. Uh, the River Shannon is the longest river in Ireland and Britain combined, and it offers this incredibly powerful source of energy. Uh, so even in the years before independence, when the doll was still, you know, outlawed, officially an, an illegal entity, the, the people in, in that government were discussing how to make use of the River Shannon, potentially, to produce electricity. And their idea was that, you know, the Shannon could spur on an industrial and agricultural revival in an independent Ireland. And that's just what they did in 1925. Mm. Just three years after independence, the fledgling Free State government launched into the construction of a major hydroelectric power plant at Ardna Crusha in County Clare. The project was enormous and not just in relative terms. At the time, it was the biggest hydroelectric power plant in the world. And amazingly, mm. it only lost that title after the construction of the Hoover Dam in 1930. Unsurprisingly, then, it was also very, very expensive. It cost about £5.2 million at the time. So to put that into perspective, the Free State's entire budget for 1925 was only £25 million. So it it represented as a cost over a fifth of the country's annual budget. But the investment paid off. Within a few years, that single power plant was supplying 80% of Ireland's entire electricity supply. The River Shannon the largest river in Ireland and one of the largest in Europe. A river that 
winds its way through Irish history and still carries on its banks reminders of the country's ancient past. But the Shannon has also played its part in the story of modern Ireland. When the native Irish government was established in 1922, one of its first tasks was to develop the natural power resources of the country. Power to light towns and villages, to bring the comforts of modern living into Irish homes. Power for industrial expansion and for farming. In a word, power to build the prosperity of a country planning once again to take a useful place among the free nations of the earth. And Ardna Crusha power plant is still going, by the way, but nowadays it only provides about 2% of the national grid, which shows you how much electricity consumption has grown since 1925. I actually can't get over what like a ballsy move that was of the Free State Government. Mm. Like one fifth of the entire annual budget on this power plant. Like, and it, when, when you think that it, this government had only been in existence for three years and it was managing an entirely new state. That would be, I suppose, a little bit like us, you know, investing a fifth of the entire budget in broadband or something. It was a huge leap of faith. Um, but in the 1920s and 30s, uh, electricity, of course, was still a luxury that could only be enjoyed in the towns and the cities of Ireland. And unfortunately, that's how it stayed for decades afterwards. Uh, that Irish government didn't really begin to set out about uh, electrifying rural areas until 1946. And even at that, it was an extremely slow process. Um, even though Ireland had made this huge fiscal investment in producing electric power, creating a, nat- a national electricity infrastructure was an, a whole other story. You know, this was another huge cost and it was an ongoing cost. And as we know, the Free State in the early years was constantly strapped for cash. Let's hear from Sorka O'Brien, who is a design historian at Kingston University and was the principal investigator on Electric Irish Homes, a research project looking at the effects of rural electrification on rural Irish housewives and homes during the 1950s and 1960s. Dr. O'Brien explained that there were multiple reasons why rural Ireland went for so long without electricity and how that made Ireland a bit of an outlier among European countries. You know, electricity was seen in the like, 20s and 30s, it was this very, very new thing. And in an awful lot of countries across the world, you know, electricity systems had been rolled out across the different countries and it became part of everyday life. Whereas in Ireland, it was actually 50s and 60s before that became normal because the ESB scheme started in 1946, but it took until the mid 60s to actually get everywhere in the country. In 1946, one of the most important pieces of our national planning was put underway when work was begun on rural electrification. This is a scheme to bring the benefits of power to the large but scattered communities living outside the towns and villages. A large undertaking, it involves the raising of one and a half million poles to carry thousands of miles of cable. This rural network will eventually supply over a quarter million farms and other dwellings. It's quite late compared to most other European countries where when they started installing the sort of national grids or set up in the 1920s and 1930s, enough most of them kept going with that immediately, whereas the process was a lot slower in Ireland and it then got interrupted by the Second World War. And also we had the problem where, for example, from an infrastructure point of view, we didn't have enough trees that were tall enough and solid enough that you could use for the electricity poles which eventually were imported from Finland, which you couldn't do during the Second World War. So, and an awful lot of it is the fact that Ireland was not in a very good economic position for most of the early and mid 20th century meant that the project didn't go hugely fast. Because what they were doing was they divided the country into 11 zones, and then each of those zones was divided up again. So they're working through them, not so much one by one because they had multiple teams working, but they were working through them slowly. And what was really happening was that you would have maybe one area would have been electrified. And if you you were in the next townland, you might not get electricity for 10 years afterwards. I think that's so interesting what Circus says there about the simple issue that there weren't enough trees in the countryside to use as electricity mm. poles, which is something you wouldn't really have thought of otherwise. 
And fascinatingly, this endemic lack of trees is partly the product of colonialism. So Ireland was almost entirely covered by mature woodland until the Middle Ages. Uh, but now it has one of the lowest forest covers in Europe today. And that's because tree felling was one of the major strategies of early colonists. So Ireland's thick forests provided protection and cover for Irish rebels. You know, they provided their sustenance. So by cutting them down, British settlers were removing a major defensive advantage. And it also made those settlers very rich because this was a valued natural resource. By that stage, much of the forests of Britain had already been felled to make way for farmland. And here was an island that was full of big, mature trees that could be sold as fuel back to Britain at very high prices. So within a relatively short time, Ireland became a largely treeless island. And it's amazing that this history is still having a knock-on effect when it came to installing electricity wires in the 1930s. Yeah, it's really fascinating. And similarly, of course, you know, history had a huge role to play in the difficulties of establishing electric infrastructure in a very sparsely populated island. Um, if you think back to our episode on the Great Hunger, we talked about the huge emptying out of the countryside uh, during the Great Famine, and in particular, like the disappearance of entire villages and townlands uh, through both starvation and immigration. So one consequence of that was just a very spread out population dispersed all around the countryside. And instead of nucleated villages, you often had, you know, hundreds and thousands of just isolated farmsteads dotting the countryside. And often those farmsteads represented the surviving remnants of a village that used to used to be there. So instead of connecting one village to the next and, and to the next and to the next and so on, electricity infrastructure in Ireland might have to travel, you know, several kilometers just to reach a single dwelling. So all across the country, these places just continued to exist without electricity for a long time. And I think it's worth taking the time to, to get a feel for what that meant for everyday life. Yeah, like, like you said earlier, Naomi, like this meant absolutely everything. So all of us at one time or another have found ourselves with a power outage, whether that just be a blown fuse or whatever. Um, but it's, it's, I always find it such a shock, um, and for me anyway, just how much the loss of electricity affects your life in such a dramatic way. Like you can't cook food, you can't stay warm, your fridge starts to defrost, like every little piece of everyday life becomes a hundred times more complicated, if not impossible. Right. And of course, that meant um, that pre-electric homes were designed differently, for one thing, because daily life involved very different things than we might think of today. So the number one priority for a dwelling in Ireland, of course, is heat, not only to keep out the cold, but also the damp. And in that famine episode that we mentioned, Tim, we talked a little bit about the typical dry stone cottages where rural farmers might live. And every aspect of those homes had this idea of heat in mind. You can still see those old cottages today and you'll notice that they're built very down low, sometimes even built into the side of the hill. And that was to prote protect them from the wind and the rain. And they, of course, they were very small. They were really as small as possible because that was the best way to ensure that they were warm inside all the time. Yeah, and a lot of those cottages um, continued to be lived in right into the 20th century. Some of them are still lived in today. And very often when the inhabitants could afford it, um, they would build a more modern house beside it and use the old cottage as a barn. Um, but even those modern houses, a lot of them were built in the 20s and 30s, um, they were often built on the same principles. Um, you know, they were still very, very small. They had small windows and usually they were built around one main room where the fire was. So this fireplace was the centre of life in pre-electric Ireland because essentially it served as a kitchen. Anything that needed to be cooked or heated had to be done on the fireplace or maybe on a range. And of course that wasn't limited to food. It, it would be where you might heat water to clean yourself, heat the iron to iron your clothes or keep a baby warm in its crib and just sit beside it for warmth. It might be the centre of social gatherings, you know, where people would sit around to talk and to tell stories. And this fire was pretty much constantly burning regardless of the weather. People would load uh, wet fuel on top of it at night so that it would dampen down and then it would be able to re be revived in the morning by stoking it. Um, you needed it constantly throughout the day and night. And we can't forget as well that when night falls, the fire was also your main source of light. Um, candles and oil were expensive in themselves, so it made a lot more sense to stay near the fire in the evening. And everything outside this circle of fire, a uh, circle of light from the fireplace would just be complete darkness. You know, no street lights outside, no shop lights, just pitch black. And then there's the issue of how you manage food. So without electricity, you don't have a fridge. 
and this has a huge effect on how and when you eat. And that also depended, of course, if you lived in the country or the city and on social class. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And we have to keep this in mind. Uh, so if you were lucky to live in a nice big middle class or upper class house, you would have a kitchen downstairs in the basement. Um, and that the reason that it's there in the basement, of course, is partially so that it can keep the food cool when you don't have a fridge. Um, you'd probably have a pantry where you can keep some things for a certain amount of time. But in general, your servants would have to go out and buy fresh food every day as needed because you just couldn't keep things for very long without electricity. Uh, if you lived in a working class tenement in Dublin, however, the closest thing you might get to a kitchen might be the bedroom fireplace. Um, you might have a little pot there where you can heat things up. So the countryside had an advantage because farmers were producing their own food and they had access to sunken storage pits and things like that in which they could preserve certain fruit and vegetables. I've spoken to an, an, an old lady earlier this year who's 96 years old and she told me about keeping things submerged in basins of water. So that's how they might have kept like dairy products, for example, fresh. Um, but the basic principle was the same. If you wanted a chicken for dinner, it was a case of going out <laughs> to and, and killing and plucking a hen. Right, yeah. Yeah, and I think I remember from our episode on Halloween a few years ago, we heard about uh, how fruit, autumn fruit was kept um, underground, uh, wrapped up in straw and then buried in a pit, um, <laughs> which is interesting. I, like when you consider that autumn fruits are so central to Halloween, you can see how you know ancient that practice must be. Um, but of course, you can see all this reflected in pre-electric architecture. Um, if you look at an old farmhouse in Ireland, and they're absolutely everywhere, you'll notice that the original structures just generally don't have a kitchen in, in the original design, or not a kitchen as we would know it. So instead, they might just have a main room with a central fireplace, and that room served as the kitchen and the living room and the reception room in general, and often a bedroom as well, especially for children. Um, so today, you'll often notice on those old farmhouses that there's a little extension on the back, um, dating from the 1920s or 30s, and that's where people usually added little kitchens after electrification. And remember, this is all in the context of many homes not having access to running water or toilets either. So you'd have to source all your water from a well, a river or a water pump, and you can still see many of these in the centre of rural towns and villages. Right, and depending on how close you live to this water source, that could mean, you know, hours of trekking back and forth with water to drink, to cook with, to wash with, etc. And generally, of course, uh, at this point, you know, baths would have been totally out of the question, or only very occasional. So you might think of old houses that you see with uh, a jug and a wash basin in, in the bedroom. They're generally kind of decorative today, but originally they, you know, stood in for a shower or a bath. Um, you'd have fresh water in that jug, and you could wet a piece of cloth and then rub down your body with it in the morning and then you can rinse out the dirty cloth in the basin. And that's about as close to a power shower, you know, or a, or a luxurious bath as you were going to get pre-electricity. So what all of this adds up to is an absolutely enormous amount of sheer physical work just devoted to the basics of everyday life. So if you just think about, for example how overwhelming it is to look after a new baby, even with all of our modern conveniences that we have. But think about doing it without access to automatic heat or light or even a sink or toilet in the house and not to mention having to kill a chicken or whatever for your meal. And just ensuring the day-to-day -day running of a home in rural Ireland was an enormous amount of labour and the vast majority of it fell on women. This is something that Sorka O'Brien is particularly interested in. So she explained to me that one of the major aspects of rural electrification was a transformation on the kind of labour required by Irish women to maintain a household. Part of what we were doing with the project was to do interviews with specifically with women who remembered rural electrification, who might have been children or were a lot of them were young adults as well. The majority of homes were being run by women at the time and an awful lot of them weren't able or in a situation working outside of the home. There's a certain amount of work going on inside of the home, so there was a, a large amount of housework going on, but also as well things like textile work being taken in or people raising chickens or selling eggs. Looking at that space, how did it change from 
the traditional setup. So people cooking on an open flame with a pot, say, that would hang from a structure that would dangle it like in the fireplace? Absolutely. Having a, an iron pot with three little legs called a bastable that you could sit into the coals or into the turf that you could then cook with or having this hanging arrangement called a crane where you could hang a pot and that you could with water in it and you could boil it the kitchen is laid out around the fireplace you would have little nooks by the fireplace that for for storage you would have all the furniture would be arranged around the fire because it's the source of the heat from a cooking point of view it's all about sitting down beside the fire and minding what's going on there mm. whereas what you're, what's happening with the introduction of electricity is that the whole kitchen is changing from that traditional setup to one where you're looking at countertops you're looking at a, a pl- you know where are the plugs how many plugs do you put in having the light in the center of the room rather than it coming from the fu- around the fireplace mm. and a very different layout being developed and it's one that an awful lot of modern interiors and modern kitchens that you see across Europe. There's the idea about the fitted kitchen, that it should be ergonomic, that it should be efficient, that you should be able to you know, reduce the amount of steps that you take when you're walking from your kitchen to your refrigerator and over and back. Mm. And it, a lot of this is about the introduction of those ideas into Ireland and what happens when they start meeting things like the, the traditional dresser. So that traditional dresser that Sorka mentions is um, a staple, really, of every rural farmhouse in the mid-20th century. And, you know, they're still pretty common today. In many ways, it was like the showpiece of a home. It's essentially a large standing piece of carved wooden furniture where you can show off your crockery, which would often have been a family heirloom. That meant it would have been the most decorative item in the house. And it's also a reminder that all the furniture in pre-electric homes was usually freestanding. It could be moved around if necessary. So the idea of built-in or fitted kitchens only came about with the introduction of electric appliances. Yeah, it's, it's so interesting to think about that. Like it shows you how electrification didn't only change the way that people behaved, but it transformed the spaces that they lived in as well um, and the way that they saw or perceived the function and form of a house. The women that we've interviewed have been talking about the huge difference, first of all, that the light made, so that you actually had electric light that you could put on with a flick of a switch. You didn't have to worry about looking after candles, looking after oil lamps, trimming wicks or anything like that. And it also gave a much brighter light as well, so that even something like a 60 watt bulb compared to a gas lamp is much, much brighter. One of the, the big influences that that, or one of the big changes that made was on home decorating because everybody talks about switching on the light and then suddenly seeing all the cobwebs in the corners that they weren't able to see beforehand. And I think there was a wave of home decorating followed the rural electrification scheme. But also as well, then you're talking about a huge change in the sheer hard work that was involved in looking after a house at the time and cooking for the the family and also cleaning as well. So before rural electrification, you're talking about an awful lot of very heavy manual work. So you want to do something as simple as make a cup of tea. You have to make sure that you've got water, which you may have to go down to a well to get. You have to put that into a kettle. You have to put it, make sure that the fire is stoked up, that you've got fuel, and then put it on to boil. And it's something that the preparation for it could take, you know, half an hour, where compared to an electric kettle where you like the switch and the water is boiled. And what was happening with the washing as well was, again, just not having to heat the water for all of your washing on an open fire. Now, Naomi, this is one huge thing that must have been just so transformative, having a washing machine. Just considering physical labour, like anyone who is uh, physically like hand washed clothes will know that it's very, very hard work. Like it's very exhausting on your muscles and on your body and you're like stooped over it. It's very tiring. Yeah, for sure. And like chances are when we hand wash things, we're probably not hand washing very many things. <laughs> it's still still yeah. pretty hard, hard work. But when you put that in the context of washing an entire family's worth of clothes, getting all, all those things clean, that is really, really backbreaking work. Sorka explained to me the absolute delight that Irish women expressed when they encountered a machine that would do all of that for them. Let's hear from her again. Now, one of the things that 
I discovered along the way that I didn't realise beforehand was the washing machines that came into Ireland in the 50s and 60s, particularly to begin with, they didn't have programmes. So what they actually were was a great big drum with like an agitator in the centre. So you put the clothes in, you switched it on, but once the pro- there was no programme, you had to time how long you wanted it to run for and then switch it off. So you decided at a certain point, I think those clothes are done, I'll yeah. turn it off. Yeah. yeah, and a lot of the time you see the photographs and the video, there are people running them with the tops off, looking at in to see to see what's going on. <laughs> it's also sometimes a bit of novelty as well, yeah. <laughs> particularly with some of, the, some of the photographs where it's somebody's getting one of these for the first time. Yeah. And it's going, wow, look at that. Yeah. Depending on whether or not you had running water, We've had stories from people where they were talking about having to go and boil the water to put in the washing machine because you could buy them with heater or without heater and the ones without heater were cheaper. Right. This pre-electric world began to change, one townland at a time. And the way that this change took place was really rather remarkable. So one thing that's interesting is that not only did so many people in rural Ireland not have electricity, many wouldn't have known anyone else who had electricity either. So this was a really radical and kind of terrifying, in some cases, change for these people. And at the same time, the Irish state was trying to convince people to get on board with this whole electricity thing for economic reasons. So people with electricity would not only raise their standard of living in a huge way, but they'd also run more efficient farms and businesses, which meant more economic growth. Yeah, and lots of people were a little bit sceptical about this, which is not at all hard to imagine. Like, if you think about today, how some older people are so resistant, you know, to mobile phones or the internet, um, you know, which are pretty user-friendly and, like, light products. Yeah, (laughs) for instance. Um, You can just imagine how hostile they might have been to this completely, completely alien new presence of something that was going to, you know, not just a a handy little little, um, tool, but something that was going to transform every single aspect of their home and life, change the lighting in their home, have wires in their home, you know. And we can't forget either that electricity and electric appliances, you know, they were expensive. And if you had no prior experience of using them, you might not think that it was worth it. You might not take a chance on it. So we see this fascinating kind of blend of public economic incentive and commercialist tactics and rhetoric um, at play here. So the Electricity Supply Board, the ESB, which controlled electricity in Ireland, that was coming up with all these clever ways to seduce people into trying, just trying out electricity, and then hopefully eventually winning them over. The ESB has provided showrooms and service centers for you in over 120 different towns. With electricity, you always get good value for your money. The latest appliances on show are all carefully tested and checked. When, when we think of the popular culture of, say, the 1950s housewife in the US, that person must have inhabited quite an exotic world to someone in Ireland who didn't yet have electricity or running water, but would be looking at them opening an oven and taking out the cake or whatever they'd they'd baked. It it really would have been another world. Totally. And it, but the thing about it is, is that it wouldn't have necessarily been inaccessible in that that world ex- in some ways existed in Dublin because the 1950s people were emigrating out of particularly out of rural Ireland at a very very high rate. So an awful lot of people had relations who might be in London or might be in Liverpool or Manchester Mm. or in the United States or Australia who had all of those mod cons, those sort of modern conveniences. And one of the things about it's really interesting is the role of things like women's magazines and the cinema as well, but showing off that modern lifestyle that was incredibly aspirational at the time. But I mean, the funny thing about it is that an awful lot of certainly the advertising in the 1950s in the United Kingdom and America was aimed at getting women who had been working in factories during the Second World War back into the home. But you don't have that in Ireland where there's no war war work yeah. the same way as there would have been. There was in the no industrialization Kingdom. of the female workforce, I guess. No, didn't no, happen. No, yeah. it just didn't happen in that way. There isn't the same urgency mm-hmm. about trying to get women out of these factory jobs and back into the home by making the home really attractive. Part of Circa's research project, Electric Irish Homes, involved collecting testimonies from women who remember the introduction of electricity into their homes. And we're delighted that the project has given us permission to share some of the interview recordings that they collected. So one of the methods used by the ESB was to wire and furnish one home in a community completely for free. 
on the condition that the occupant would agree to use the home as a showroom for the neighbours, with regular cooking and cleaning demonstrations over a period of two years. And this was a way to make the wider community less suspicious of the new technology and eventually start buying electrical appliances themselves. Let's hear from Mary, who was one of the first people in West Cork who was chosen to host one of these showrooms in her house. Mary, you got involved early on with the first electric kitchen in West Cork, didn't you? I did, yeah. Tell us a bit about that now. Uh, I was near near enough to the village. It came up at a meeting one night that the SB were looking for somewhere to make an electric kitchen. The thing was, there had to be a young married couple with a new kitchen built. And we were after getting married anyway, and the kitchen was built. Someone thought and mentioned our name, and that's how it started. We were consulted, and, and of course, we didn't know what actually what was involved. Was it very exciting times? I said, twice, it was very exciting, twice, twice, twice. All these new gadgets and everything. We did a lot of renovation, and we had to put in a toilet, which, which we hadn't a toilet, because we had no water. The sink, would you have? No, that no. all came. That all came? That all came. Yeah? I came with a fully fitted kitchen came with, with utensils. Very good. Uh, down to the kettle. Yeah? yeah? God, that was a nice bonus. Yeah, yeah. Down to the kettle. And then what did you, what, what did you have to do on your part then? What we had to do then, uh, we had to accommodate them. It was fun. Then as a kind of vocational, I suppose, run for the vocational. Tuesday night was, was a domestic night. And uh, Thursday night was... Arts and crafts. So that was in your house? Yeah. And, and how? And, it was, and it accommodated all the women around. There was about 20, 25 women arriving every two nights. And did how long did it keep going for? What, two years. Two years? Yeah. And did every woman then learn how to cook? They on did, they could, yeah. Well, no, it was demonstration cooking. Yeah. But they went home with the, with the knowledge. The fact that women were so much at the centre of rural electrification is absolutely evident from the promotional material that was put out during those early years. So electricity was promoted to women not only as a way to make their lives easier, but as a way to become a better wife and mother, essentially to upgrade to this electric version of a housewife. It was often accompanied by words like that it was more sanitary, more modern, more clean. Now, when I was researching this, I actually found a whole load of promotional material from throughout the years um, for the ESB. And it's, some of it is so, so fascinating. Um, and I have some of them here that, that we can look at. Um, some of these, by the way, uh, listeners, if you're interested in looking at them, you can find some of them. They're published on the ESB website, esbarchives.ie. Um, but if you, if you give them a Google, I'm sure you'll find them anyway. Um, so I have one here for you, Naomi. This is from the 1950s, and we should probably uh, describe it. Um, so this is, this is a picture of um, a beautiful roast dinner and a very spiffy looking um, housewife there beside it um, in in very kind of typical 1950s housewife um, attire. And it says, good housewives cook electrically. And it goes through four points. It's cheaper than you thought, it says. It's quicker than you knew. It's cleaner than you dreamed. And it's simpler than you imagined. So there are also clues in these advertisements about who the ESB are trying to convince. Um, So there's one here from the 1940s. And it says, Grandad is a new man. <laughs> it says, there was a time when his old cronies never came to see him and you could hardly blame them. Grandad's bedroom was very cold for visitors. Oh. <laughs> but it's different and cheerier story now since mother bought an electric fire. So it shows like one of these electric heaters that you sort of plug in and the inside of them gets hot. Mm. Um, and now his friends come around again. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And like, I, I suppose that, you know, that comes back to what we were saying earlier about old people maybe being a bit sceptical about that. You know, they're trying to say, wouldn't you like a nice warm bedroom, granddad, you know, and you'll have friends now because you have electricity. (laughs) And there's also like, there's a whole paragraph dedicated to how it's not that expensive. So it says it costs like one, I think that's one and a half shillings an hour. I think I'm reading that right. And that you get glowing warmth the very instant that it's switched on. It also says... You, you know, it just comes on your two monthly bills. So it kind of, it goes, it calculates the whole thing, how much it's going to cost and how you pay for it. 
quickly and it had that in the last uh, one that we looked at as well it's very very clear about the price and kind of telling you that it's less expensive than you think it is you know which is interesting there's also quite a few of these promotional materials that that treat electricity like a health issue which is really interesting like there's one here from the 1950s um, that's warning about the dangerous effects of low light on your eyes and how electricity can save your eyesight so it has a picture of an elderly woman, I think, uh, if I can see it properly, and she's struggling to see the needle and thread uh, in her fingers. And then she turns on the electric light and it's much easier and she, she loses about 10 years. Um, it says, correct light, <laughs> correct light saves sight, use electricity. That's really interesting here. So like we've we've had kind of three very big social pressures in these three pictures. First of all, you'll be a better housewife. If you don't use electricity, you'll be a bad housewife. Uh, second of all, like, the reason you don't have any friends, Grandad, is because you don't have electricity. <laughs> and the third one is, like, the reason that you're blind is that you're not using electricity. So, like, it's quite, I mean, it, it's couched very gently, but these are quite kind of aggressive messaging. So I kind of learned all about this subject when I visited um, this exhibition in the National Museum of Ireland's Country Life in in Mayo, which was where um, there was an exhibition called Kitchen Power, which featured these interviews that Sorka had done with people who lived through the electricity transformation. Um, and this exhibition was full of all of these kinds of advertisements and as, as well like old television footage that showed ads for electri electrification, which is kind of like, you won't believe the astonishment of how clean and modern it seems to flick a light switch, stuff like that. Like, da -da -da -da. One of these mornings when you get your ESB bill and you think it's bigger than before, congratulate yourself. You're living better. Electricity is making life easier for you and your family. Electricity helps your wife when she's washing, and cooking, and cleaning. Electricity heats baby's bath. Electricity warms baby's bottle. From ironing to keeping food fresh, electricity helps in so many ways. And yeah, they also feature like the like the ladies who are chosen to have the showrooms and like have special uniforms to like be evangelists for this electricity. It's really interesting. But um, so along with the eyewitness accounts that you hear, it provides a really fascinating snapshot of just a moment of immense, quite radical change in Irish history that like we don't even think about. Like we don't even talk about how much our life and society has been transformed and so recently you know mm. it's just not something that we really consider so during this time of transformation whole communities headed into big towns and cities to purchase their first electric appliances and essentially change their lives forever which is really incredible to think of it left everybody i think happy yeah because it took the drudgery out of all the hard work you mm. know that people had to do like it, you couldn't believe, like, I, I, I can always remember, remember my mother saying, oh, she says, I think this is heaven. She says, this has to be heaven. She, she loved it. She loved it. She loved wonderful? it. She was a, she was a, she was a jo nice, jolly woman and she loved the, yeah. she loved the, the, the electricity. But she appreciated. She appreciated. And then we were all getting bigger. Yeah. And of course, uh, um, we were all at home for mm. quite some time, like, and she said it was great, like you know, it was easier. It was easier to get them washed if it's Saturday night. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Go to the bathroom then. Yes. <clears throat> we a, we built a bathroom then on the top uh, over yes. the. We had only a scullery at the back, yeah. but so we built a bathroom up the ba yeah. up on the top of the. the so sky. you had the hot and cold running With the hot, water. No, I, I couldn't believe you know things that you'd never. You'd yes. you think in the lifetime would never happen yes, to you. Yes, and light in the bathroom. Light in the bathroom, yes, yes on the hairdryer. And heat and in the bedrooms. And yeah, yes, it made such a such yeah. a difference, so really. It, it was luxury, really. It was in the space of a few it, years. It was. Yeah. It was luxury. That's yeah. true. Like nobody could believe that transformation yeah. it did have for yeah. people's lives and for for the area yeah. and for everything else. And we we just take it so much for granted now. Do you remember where you got the product, the electrical products when you... The electrical products, there was um, a shop in Yall, an ESB shop in Yall, that had appliances, not an awful big selection, but we didn't know the difference. <laughs> we went in and we took the kettle that was there, I suppose, and yeah. whatever, and a fridge. Maybe there was a, a variation in a few sizes, and um, that was it. That did they show you how to use things and... Was there demonstrations? Well, uh, um, there was a demonstration kitchen there, yes. We were told to plug it in and told, I think, as I know my mother was told about um, 
uh, the, the hot and the cold and what temperature to keep uh, stuff. It was numbered. When everyday wear and tear takes its toll, the ESB provides a comprehensive service. With over 650,000 customers, some complaints are inevitable. But these are dealt with quickly using the most modern methods of communication to provide the fastest possible solution. Uh, the first thing we got, uh, my father said to my mother, me, he said, you'll have to get rid of the range and we'll buy an electric cooker. So he went over to Berniscarty and he got the train to Cork and he went into McGregor's, the hardware shop, and he bought a GEC cooker. And it came by train to Berniscarty. And I remember he had to even over in the pony and cart to bring it home from Berniscarty. And the excitement was something else. All the neighbors were coming in to see it. <laughs> was it. And was there any instructions with your anything? There was a book with it, and it was a GEC cooker. So for the first few weeks, we were experimenting every day, so we had... <laughs> We had baked buns and rhubarb and everything else. <laughs> so you had a, the whole day long a feast out of it. Feast out of it. I have great memories of turning up on that one switch <laughs> <laughs> and seeing light. It was such a wonderful thing. We never, even though they were crude looking when we know when we think about them now. Oh, let's turn it on. But everything seemed dirty. When you turned down the light, the light was so good and in, in comparison to what we had before. I thought I was with my grandmother that morning mm. it came on. And this is what she said. She was born in 1870 and in 1952 she was uh, 82. Uh, she said, she blessed herself and she said, the light of heaven to our souls. I thought it was a great, nowadays I appreciate what she said. I really just can't get over like how recent these memories are and like how rapid the change has been. Like if you think about the nation of Ireland now. It's so valuable as well to have those to have those eyewitness, you know, accounts because you know you get to hear about all these little unexpected byproducts of electricity that like that you don't often think about at all. Of course for farmers too, uh, absolutely transformed their livelihood. So, for example, you could install an electric light, for instance, in your barn now, and that meant that you could work totally different hours than you used to work before. Um, or you could keep young animals warm under uh, electric heat lamps, uh, which meant that more of your livestock would survive. This interviewee mentions the effect of heat lamps on the banovs, as they call them, which is the Irish word for baby pigs. And the interviewee mentions that having more piglets survive the winter meant that more of them had to be fed, which was a new challenge in itself, and it would change the, the daily routine uh, of the farm. The red lamp, did, of course, oh, the that, red lamp that was a great thing for the... That was fantastic. Kept a lot of my life. Did, of course. But you had to see the little banners then, too. You see, maybe mm-hmm. 15 or 16 banners. They don't have to, they'd have to have heat. How about chickens? Over oh, the chickens and the turkeys. And would you have the light for them, too? Sometimes you would. For the smart little chickens, the deals, the fellas. The deals that come in the box. Yeah, they come in the box. You'd have to have them for them. There's a wide variety of electrical equipment for use in dairy and other farming, and many Irish farmers are now taking full advantage of it. The infrared lamp has solved the old problem of providing warmth at a reasonable cost for the rearing and fattening of pigs. In poultry farming, too, ideal conditions for hatching and rearing can be created at the turn of a switch. One of the things that was mentioned a good few times in uh, those interviews was a certain fear or apprehension about the danger of electricity, which is totally understandable. It's this thing that's running through your wall that's in your home and, you know, you might not understand exactly, um, but has the power to heat things or light things, you know, and what if it goes wrong? So along with all those promotional advertisements that we talked about, um, Tim, there were a lot of other ones which were aimed at informing Irish people basically how not to electrocute themselves. Mm. There's one here in the archives, for example, that warns children not to climb electricity poles and stuff, uh, like just basically trying to get across that this form of energy like could be fatal if not treated with care. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you can really see how that would put people off. Like, you know, if if you if the first time that you bought an iPhone or something that you were warned, you know, be careful, don't touch it when your hand is wet or you could die. You know, this is <laughs> essentially like what it must have seemed like to people, um, especially, you know, with those older styles of electric appliances, which weren't necessarily as safe as, as what we have today. Um, it's so interesting that you say, like, not don't touch it with your wet hand. Like, do, 
is it normal to be told that about light switches when you're growing up? Because that has really stuck with me that I'm not supposed to touch a light switch with a wet hand. I feel, yeah, I feel like I've heard <laughs> that before or either, or otherwise I've just grown up very like personally cautious, but I never would either. <laughs> or uh, like, like, for example, I think in Ireland, there aren't light switches in bathrooms. Like I no. think that's what that's like a safety measure. You get them it's in true. other countries in bathrooms. Yes, but they're, they're... part of the reason why they're not in bathrooms because you're not supposed to touch them with your wet hand. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> uh, uh, um, there's no light switches inside the bathrooms, and there's no plugs either at all. Right. And there's like there's Didn't a plug in in my bathroom here where I live uh, in Paris, and every time I'm brushing my teeth or something, I glance like nervously at the plug, <laughs> and I don't think I've ever used it once. Like. <laughs> Anyway, like, yeah, but I mean, but th this is uh, like, especially when you don't know what this is, just think about how much more powerful that fear would be. Like, this is an invisible substance that you know is power enough to kill you. And it's running through wires inside your house. So, you know, people were warned about this stuff, getting appliances wet or touching a live wire or what have you. Um, they were warned about that. And it must have been really nerve wracking to go near those things really at all. Clearly, this fear has been passed down to us. But there was, was there a fear of, of it coming? They were, a bit, they were a bit scared because they said, how could you plug a kettle into the wall to boil for you? And how could you plug it into the wall and cook your dinner in a cooker? Then they said uh, to how strange it felt for them. Yeah, yeah. And I suppose they were afraid as well. Yeah. That it would be dangerous because they'd be electrified themselves. Yeah, yeah. Then she was afraid of the electricity initially. So she always had holy water handy. And he was made to turn on the switch. She was so afraid of it. And then she'd be blessing him and blessing everybody with holy water. You know, a lot of the people had relatives in America and places where they'd come home after a couple of years. Like, mm. And then before they'd go back to America or wherever Canada they had come from, they'd call into the showrooms to get a gift for mother. Now, it might be a cooker in some case, a washing machine, whatever it would be, a refrigerator and mother would be getting the present when the person was gone. So you'd go out and you might find that there was a cooker being installed and they were afraid of it. And it would be there in the kitchen with the lovely orange cloth over it and nobody using it. Now, one thing I find really interesting about electrification is the part it had to play in softening traditional class boundaries, um, from certain perspectives anyway. Like, in particular, the in introduction of electricity to middle-class and upper-class homes meant that a lot of the tasks traditionally carried out by servants could now be done at the flick of a switch by the householders themselves. And that very much helped to kind of usher out the era of live-in domestic servants across Europe. Of course. And I suppose the whole reason that better off people employed servants in the first place was to do with the labour of running a house. Like, mm. Especially a big or opulent house. It just involved so much daily work, so many different tasks like we talked about at the beginning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, it's, I mean, this, this is a bit of a disconnect for us today because it seems so strange to think of servants hanging around your house, you know, or just being so prominent in society. Uh, but it was logistically impossible, really, to run a middle class or an upper class house without servants before electricity. Um, you know, if you want to wear three different outfits a day, for instance, like who is going to do all that work? You know, go down to the well and scrub your outfits otherwise. <laughs> like... <laughs> And when we think of servants now, we probably think of like, you know, period dramas, you know, big kind of like Downton Abbey style affairs. But we have to remember as well that like, you know, middle class people and even lower middle class people had servants like, you know, would have employed at least one servant. Quite simply, because if you didn't have a servant at least part time, you wouldn't really be considered middle class. You know, like this this idea of being working class, um, that term working includes domestic work. You know, part of that work is the fact that you have to work at home, like, you know, to do all this stuff for yourself. Uh, so it was particularly important um, for middle class women because a lot of their status was based on the perception that she was managing servants. Like that was her role in the house in like, you know, Victorian or Edwardian Ireland and never engaging in like, quote unquote, base or manual domestic tasks herself. Right. That would have been like a sign of falling on hard times or something if you had to be scrubbing stuff. Yeah, absolutely. It was the absolute worst thing you could do because it would really just call your social class into question. Um, so in that regard... Like when you think about the introduction of electricity in the mid 20th century, 
there is this certain aspirational element to it. And when you think about that image of a 1950s housewife, you know, who doesn't, who doesn't work professionally, who stays at home all day, delighted, you know, with the housework and delighted with all her sparkling electrical appliances, <laughs> you can see an interesting kind of overlap there with like this idea of a middle-class Edwardian housewife. Because you'll notice that this expectation that this electric housewife is dressing up every day, you know, to look right. her best, you know. She's uh, just, got time. She's got that luxury to look well. Yeah, 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 yeah. And like, you know, think of those famous images of housewives like baking pies in like full-on taffeta and like petticoats and high heels and stuff. That's essentially just a reincarnation of the idealized middle-class woman who doesn't, you know, do manual work, spends all day looking nice. Um, but instead of commanding a team of servants, you know, this electric housewife is essentially commanding a team of machines to do this physical work for her. It's so interesting. It's so interesting. Mm. It reminds me of how, you know, when you read accounts of people's lives in the 20th century in Ireland, it's so typical that you know, a young woman, a young teenager would go to work as a servant and um, perhaps for an aunt or someone, you know, just someone who had a bit more, I guess, resources. And they, they might not be like a super rich person. They might just, you know, be a farmer. Like, you know, they're just a mm. slightly better off farmer. Uh, but like, yeah, just having help around the house was was totally normal. Um, so this whole thing also brings up the very sharp divide between how the electric household was presented in advertisements and on film and actually what it meant in reality. Because, of course, electricity made domestic tasks less physically taxing. It took away the literal like lifting of the feckin' water from the well. Um, <laughs> but it didn't it didn't make them disappear. Like on the contrary, um, just like so many pieces of new technology, like in the current day that are supposed to make our lives easier, it actually introduces a new set of chores and a new set of expectations because it raises those domestic expectations so dramatically. Like you mentioned, Tim, that idea that women uh, were now expected to embody these middle class ideals of beauty and femininity as well as continuing to fulfill the duties of a working class wife and mother, like making food appear on the table and raising children and all of that kind of stuff, um, keeping everything clean. This represented a whole new set of burdens that have survived absolutely into the current day in Ireland and around the world. Yeah, yeah, it's, it is really interesting. And I think that, you know, that perception that we see maybe in some of those advertisements, that housework is easy now, you know, like, that housework is like is done in the in the flick of a switch. You know that had a huge role to play in devalorizing or devaluing uh, domestic work in the mm. popular imagination. Because of course, as we know, you know, like cooking something in an electric oven isn't done with the flick of a switch. Like it actually takes loads and loads of time still. And to a certain extent, you know that la that all that labor became invisible. Right. And you're not making a stew anymore where you put all the ingredients into the pot and, you know, you add to it over time. Now it's like you've got to produce a lasagna or whatever, which is just something much more complex and that takes many more steps. Which house has the electric cooker? Not yours, madam. Your kitchen's a grease trap. But look at your neighbour. She has an electric cooker, so her kitchen stays clean and fresh. You can spare your husband all that decorating. He knows the man next door can relax in a clean kitchen where cooking is cheaper and quicker. What really strikes me as well is like how American this is. Like this, um, this ideal is so American. It's an amazing cultural influence uh, that reflects that kind of the geopolitical realities of the mid 20th century. At uh, this 1950s housewife aspiration is such a specific idea of idealized femininity and, and the realities of it, you know, the, the way in which it shaped people's lives is so alien to the Irish traditions and also the realities of life to, for Irish women uh, that preceded them. Like, just think about how agricultural Ireland would have been before, up to that point, like involving physical labour, the way people dressed. It's a massive cultural transformation. Oh yeah, one of the things that's really important about the whole story is the, the word drudgery. It, come, it came up again and again and again both in the reading that I was doing in newspapers and in archives, and in, it comes up in the ads, but also as well in the stories that the women were telling us that the big effect of rural electrification was to reduce the drudgery in the home so that there's, there isn't all that hard physical work, but 
the advertisements would have you believe that it just disappears and that you can go around with a beautiful hairdo and six inch heels, whereas the reality is is not quite that glamorous. <laughs> was it replaced by new judgery or was the new work that the women got seen as more creative and more engaging, more rewarding? That was certainly the way that it was being presented in the, the women's magazines and the advertisements. Um, I don't know it's necessarily more creative but it was definitely less physically difficult as well and I mean this is one of the the continuous problems about housework is that it just never goes away your tools might change and your patterns of how you do it might change but it doesn't actually go away and there's you know there's still the problem of well who's actually doing the housework and is it sticking to particular gender roles or is it something a bit more balanced and that's something that this highlighted for me particularly that that's still an issue today well that's all we have time for for this episode but if you want to hear more from Sorka we will publish the full interview with her over on Patreon and you can find it by heading over to our Patreon page today at patreon.com forward slash the Irish passport don't forget to like and share the podcast of course if you enjoyed it and absolutely to give us a nice review if you're feeling in a generous mood today Uh, our reviews on whatever podcast app you use make such a difference and it helps people to find us and keep the podcast going I don't know about you Tim but I'm in the mood to flick a switch and in a very sanitary (laughs) modern miraculous way enjoy a cup of tea from my electric kettle so bye everyone (laughs) bye everyone Slán